Hello, my friends, Rob Orman here, and you are listening to The Stimulus Podcast, where we break down ideas, strategies, and habits to live and work with intent. Don't just suck it up. Think differently. I spent 20 years as an emergency physician and now as a physician coach help docs work through burnout, overwhelm, leadership challenges, or just feeling stuck. If you are looking to recalibrate your career, learn more at our website, roborman.com, where you can set up a free coaching discovery session with me to get clarity on your challenges and goals and see if one-on-one coaching is something you'd like to pursue. The Stimulus Podcast is sponsored in part by you, our listeners, via donations through Patreon. If you find value in the show, throw a couple coins in the hat, as it were, to help support production costs and keep the wind in the sails. There's a link to our Patreon page in the show notes, and shout out, thank yous to a few of our new Patreons. We got Dr. Mike Lampy, thank you, Mike Lampy, Josh Russell, famous Michigander Josh Russell, and Lauren Rausch, who I hear may have his own tequila someday. Today's episode is very different from our usual fare. Somewhat of a tutorial on how to start a ketamine clinic. I mean, what the heck? Why this topic? Well, believe it or not, this is something that I've discussed with several of you, not on air, but on the side. I mean, many people are curious about possibly doing this as a side hustle or even a career change, or maybe even just, you know, learning a little more just to learn a little more. And frankly, it's something I want to know about. So we got the show and we have an expert or the expert on this, Dr. Sam Coe, MD, MBA. Sam spent many years as an emergency physician and now works full-time running his own ketamine clinic as well as ketamine-startup.com, which helps people go from the idea of doing this, so just the thought, to actually getting a clinic up and running. And in this conversation, we cover a lot. We talk about Sam's motivation for changing the trajectory of his career from emergency clinician to full-time business owner, the steps and money it takes to actually open a clinic, potential hiccups and hurdles, because you know there's going to be some when you open a business, what it looks like from the patient's perspective, a bit on how ketamine works, what and whom it might benefit, the actual granular steps of infusion, what are the potential adverse reactions, including some that Sam has seen? Now, a couple things. At the end of the interview, you'll hear Sam, I, I didn't know this was coming, but Sam threw out that he has made a link for listeners of this show to get some free swag. And swag in this case is a checklist for starting a ketamine clinic and also a very extensive and thorough worksheet for building a business plan. If you are starting a business or if you're getting a loan or investors, you need a business plan. And this is about as good as I've seen of a worksheet. No, it's not too much, not too little. This is kind of like just right, like the Goldilocks business plan. Of course, you do the work. He kind of gives you the prompts. I just downloaded both of these and uh, yeah, very cool. And just for clarity, I have no financial ties or financial relationship with Sam or any of his businesses. I just think what he is doing is novel and interesting and important. And as you'll see, he's really quite the fount of knowledge and experience when it comes to ketamine and doing this very specific thing of opening a ketamine clinic. And triple bonus, it's maybe like a quadruple bonus in the show notes. 
Amongst other things, there are several ketamine playlists. Yes, Sam has sent us what he uses for patients in his clinic. He also sent a whole bunch of other ones from other ketamine therapy centers and providers. So this is this thing is just chock full, chock full, chock full audio, chock full bonus stuff. The cup runneth over. All right, here we go. Our conversation with Dr. Sam Coe. There's so many questions I'm dying to know, but this may be the biggest one. How did you get into opening up a ketamine clinic? I was thinking about this and I really feel like it's a part of my purpose in life. And Steve Jobs in his commencement address at Stanford, he had talked about how he can look backward and see these dots aligning. And while you're in it, you don't necessarily see it, but looking backward, you can see it. So I look back upon my life When I was in college, I was working at University of Washington as a lab assistant, and I was working with ketamine for procedural sedation on animals, point for ketamine. And then with emergency medicine, that's one of the specialties that uses ketamine frequently. And so that's another point for ketamine. And then where I did my medical training, they were doing a lot of research back in the 90s for use of ketamine as a procedural sedation agent because previously it was mainly used in the operating room by anesthesiologists and so i was using it frequently there and then you know looking back i've just always been interested in kind of studying the mind consciousness and then i just felt like the stars aligned and i have an entrepreneurial background i have the mba And so just all of it just kind of coalesced into what we've created now. Did the MBA happen because you saw that you wanted to start this business or was that, or was that kind of beforehand? It's like, Oh, I actually, I've got this sheepskin. I can actually apply this to, to my ketamine startup. I had no idea I was going to do ketamine clinics. My vision when I was back in med school, it was like, I was going to be a healthcare administrator. I wanted to run healthcare organizations. I was like, all right, I'm going to be the CEO of a I don't know, a large hospital system and I'm going to be doing stuff. And actually I was down that route. I was climbing that ladder. So I had finished my medical training, maybe five or 10 years after that, I was given a job as an associate medical director of an ED for a a contract management group. And they were like, Hey, Sam, we want to give you a promotion. We're going to have you be the medical director. And then we're going to have you be the regional medical director. And I thought about the people who are inspirational to me. And I kind of saw where that ladder was climbing. And I was like, you know what? That's just not for me. So I was given a choice to go down this you know, traditional administrative managerial role or do something completely novel, something completely different and just take a leap into the space of ketamine. You're on this path to leadership and thing like, you know what? I look at this, it's not inspiring. For some people it is. I don't want to put that out there that, you know, because leadership is so important. And if you feel that passion, yes, go for it. But if not, don't go for it. So you had this inclination to do something else but why this and not another side gig? I mean, you could be producing music. I mean, there's so many things you could be doing, uh, you know? So why this particular thing? And I, I guess maybe a follow-up question. What was the moment when, boom, that's the magic. This is where I'm going. I think that moment was, I was working in the ER. We had the um, 5150s and I don't know what it's called in other states, but it's the psychiatric holds. 
And I remember they were just languishing in the ED, 24, 48, you know, even 72 hours where the hold would expire. And I was like, this is insane and they're not getting the help they need. And so I just had this little seed planted. What if we were to use ketamine? Because I had seen this really small study where they were using it for suicidal ideation. So that's kind of when the very first seed was planted. Like I I'm just really passionate about ketamine as a transformational medicine. There's this whole psychedelic renaissance that's occurring with MDMA, psilocybin, and it's it's just really cool to do something novel. It's it's a lot of fun. And you know, people have asked me, "Hey, why don't you do Botox or why don't you do IV hydration or why don't you do vitamin B12 and all this other stuff?" But I'm not passionate about it. It's not fun. It's not something that I want to read about during my off hours. So, I think for me, it's really purpose-driven and the stars aligned and it just led to this path that I've taken. You ever debrief with patients after you've, adult patients, after you've done a procedure using ketamine and just discussed their experience just to kind of get into what's going on? Oh, totally. And at least in the emergency department, you know, so for example, with like pediatric patients, we're using it frequently and they taught us Hey Sam, before you give the sedation, you want to, you know, kind of put them in a happy setting or in a, yeah. or in a mindset. So what I would yeah. ask them, I would ask them, Hey, where's your favorite vacation spot or what movies do you like? And then get them talking about something enjoyable to them before I administer the ketamine. This is in the ED. And what I notice is afterwards, I would ask him, Hey, what was it like? And some of our pediatric patients. I would say, oh yeah, I was in this video game or, you know, another person's like, yeah, I was, you know, I just felt like I was back in Hawaii sitting on the, on the beaches and seeing the ocean. And I just noticed how the mindset prior to getting the ketamine really influenced their experience after there was one profound moment I can think of. I I was a patient, was a shoulder dislocation. And he was probably in his 60s or 70s. We were, I was going to use ketamine because I'm a big proponent of that for procedural sedation. And after the procedure was completed, he was crying. And I was like, uh-oh, you know, what's going on? So I talked with him and he said he had this kind of a near-death experience where he, he said he went to heaven and he felt like he had died. And I was like, okay. And, you know, tell me more. And he said, and then I just felt all of this love for my wife and his wife was waiting in the, in the waiting room. And so he's just felt like this overwhelming sense of gratitude and love for his wife. And it was just a profound experience for him. And we weren't using it for, you know, depression or PTSD. It was, you know, mainly just for a shoulder dislocation, but yeah, it was quite transformational to see that experience for him afterwards. I can feel the burgeoning ambition of wish of wanting to dive deep into discussing ketamine stories right now. And we will get to that later because, you know, listen, you signed up for this listeners, you know, it's going to be tangential as uh, tangents off of tangents, but we're going to stick to the topic, at least in the beginning. So opening up a ketamine clinic, is this something that any doc could do out of the box as in, is there specific licensing? Do you need additional training? Is it only open to certain specialties? So ketamine therapy is very cutting edge. There's not a lot of regulations. So technically anyone with a DEA 
license, a medical license, can start up their own clinic. As a matter of fact, you can, you know, there's family practice physicians, there's psychiatrists, there's anesthesia, there's CRNAs, there's psychiatric nurse practitioners. And of course, it's state dependent. You know, some states like California, you need a physician to open up a medical clinic, but other states like Washington, you know, a nurse practitioner can open up their own practice. So there are some state regulations involved. But yeah, I mean, if someone feels comfortable with it and they've received some training, whether it's intramuscular ketamine training or if they have a particular interest, it's wide open actually at this time. This is a brick and mortar clinic, right? People come in, they get ketamine, which we are going to talk about more in a bit. But one of the intimidating things about this is just kind of like getting the space, being a property owner, renter. And to that end, what kind of space would you say would be the minimum viable product to get this up and running and and to do it well, not just, uh, yeah, I got a tough shed in the backyard, man. It's not... Although maybe that would be good. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen it kind of all over the place. There was a friend of mine. He's also an emergency physician based out of Texas. And when he started up his clinic, it was literally in a shopping mall. And it was, he said it was just like a one, one office. So like a studio basically in a strip mall. And that's where he started up his practice. There's another guy, anesthesiologist, and he's like, yeah, I'm just renting out a room from another physician. They had an extra room available and I started there. And then you have the opposite end of the spectrum where, you know, they're buying a building and they're dropping, you know, 100K, 150K for the build out. So it's a pretty wide spectrum. But as far as like the minimum, you know, basically you need a room. And of course you can do one patient at a time at that, in that scenario, but yeah, it can be intimidating because we don't really know, you know, how do I negotiate a lease? How do I even find the right space? You know, what am I looking for? So that can be challenging for sure. But getting outside resources, talking with real estate agents, business attorneys who specialize in healthcare, like all of that's going to be really supportive. What do you, what do you need? I'd imagine what? dimmable yeah, lights, so- a, a lazy boy. Okay. So as far as like space, I would say you need at least one room. So there's like the minimum and then there's what would be ideal. So minimum, let's say you just have one room, you're renting out an office from another physician. Okay, fine. But an ideal would be you have the room, you have a waiting room and then a bathroom and maybe another place for like storage. So yeah, it can be done really inexpensively or you can, you know, go big and drop a lot of money and invest it. So it's kind of variable. When I first started, I was actually looking at this space. It was a beautiful space, kind of a brand new building. It was a shell. So I I would have to spend quite a bit of money. I I think they were, it was like a hundred thousand dollars for the build out. And then every month it would have been, you know, 8,000, 10,000 a month. It was beautiful space, but it was just not sustainable. And I wanted to keep my overhead low And I found a really small office in Palm Springs. It was an older building. It was quiet. It didn't require a lot of build out. And so I just kept my overhead low and started it really small. I think it was like 700 square feet. And that was sustainable. It was very doable and it worked. How much did you have to put into that to make it a viable space? I would say, you know, I was thinking about this probably around 75K to Uh start it up. So if someone is interested in starting it up, you probably need anywhere from, you know, kind of depending upon your 
geographic location, probably 50 grand to uh, let's say 150. Mm -hmm. And then you also want to have some money for runway, you know, because when I started up the clinic back in 2018, super slow, very, very slow. I think I did four infusions the first month and it was just kind of an empty space. And it was great because I was working part-time at a couple of different ERs and I would just, you know, do two to three shifts in the ER and then one day of clinic work. And it was interesting because with each month, it just started getting, you know, more patients, word of mouth. And by December, 2021, I actually shifted out of the ER completely. And I just went full-time and working in the ketamine space. When you're talking 50 to 75 grand, what's the big chunk that that's going into? The big chunk would be equipment. Uh, and that includes like having the nice recliner, having the pump, having the vital sign monitoring, all the supplies that you need. And then the build out because the build out of the space, you want to paint and build walls possibly. So I would say the build out and the equipment. And then of course there is malpractice insurance, which is quite a bit of money and hiring staff. So someone comes into into the clinic and they're here for ketamine. Are you giving it IV, intranasal, PO? We're doing intravenous ketamine. Okay. And it's based upon their body weight. And so we'll do like six sessions of IV ketamine. And then, you know, for patients who've had good experiences, no major side effects, complications, then some of those patients will be transitioned to oral ketamine for home use. And we try to do it as infrequently as possible and as needed only. So that would be, so I'm kind of mainly focused on the intravenous in the clinic and then occasionally sublingual ketamine at home. What's the dose of the IV that they get in the clinic? So the standard dose is 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, which is slowly infused over a 40 minute infusion. And that's based upon the initial studies that were done at Yale and the National Institute of Mental Health. So we'll start there. But one of the, some later studies are showing that a higher dose can be more effective. So we'll gently titrate their dose up to one mg per kg, sometimes even, you know, 1.25, 1.5 mg per kg, slowly delivered over that 40 minute infusion. When I hear that 0.5, dose 0.5 mg per kg, I think, oh my gosh, partial dissociation, right? You and I have both seen this. You get a trauma patient and you're, you're giving them ketamine for pain. It's like all of a sudden they are in the worst possible way. Yeah. It's a very low dose. And I've definitely seen it where I give, you know, one to two mg per kg IV, you know, delivered for that trauma patient. I remember one guy was putting in a chest tube and he wasn't quite fully sedated and I gave him ketamine and I think it was probably one or two MIGs per kg. And he had a terrible experience. He was screaming. He felt like he was in hell. So yeah, that can happen. And especially with the higher doses. But what's different is that it's, you know, when I gave it to the trauma patient, it's, you know, pretty rapid push, right? Like over a two minute period. Whereas with these other kind of sub dissociative doses, it's a slow experience. And when I tell my patients, Hey, the first few minutes, you're not going to feel much. It's kind of like you're on an airplane kind of gently taking off. And then the ascent is very gradual and then the descent. So they'll ascend plateau and then slowly come back down to normal. Is there an advantage to using IV over 
say PO or intranasal? You know, there's several advantages I can think of. Like number one, it's hundred percent bioavailable. Mm. And so I can use the minimal effective dose. The other thing is that I can stop it at any time and then the effects will rapidly fade because sometimes it can be scary and they might have anxiety or they might have fear or they might you know, have something come up and they'll want to stop it. It's pretty rare, but it does happen. And a lot of patients knowing, hey, in the back of my, back of my mind, I can get off the ride at any time. It's quite reassuring for them. So there's that. The other benefit of it is I have access to an IV line. So if I need to give some, you know, labetalol, or if I need to give some Versed, some Zofran, I just have that accessible. And I think that's really a useful tool as well. What percentage of the time does somebody require a rescue or a uh, additional medication? And then what subset of them winds up going to the emergency department for more extensive evaluation and treatment? Yeah, great question. So I do really careful screening prior to the infusions. They are pretty healthy, but things can happen. So I've had panic attacks definitely occur. One of the things that we do at our clinic is continuous cardiac rhythm monitoring. I remember one patient, he entered AFib with RBR. And he had no history of AFib with RBR. So, you know, that was something where he had to go to the emergency department. Another patient, she actually had a seizure during the ketamine therapy, and we had to send her to the ER. And then I remember another patient, he kind of had a vasovagal type of syncopal response. So it's pretty rare. I think I've done probably over a thousand ketamine infusions at the clinic. And so out of those thousand, maybe I think I've had to call 911, maybe three times, maybe five times. Yeah. Another patient had chest pain. So yeah, it's pretty rare. So like 0.5% of the time I've seen it where they have kind of a adverse reaction or experience. We had talked before about set and setting, even in the emergency department with kids who are going to be getting ketamine. You know, you turn the lights down a little bit, it's chill, nobody's freaking out, we're all calm. Let's think about superheroes and vacations and mm-hmm. afterwards it's hugs and love and it's it's all good. And, you know, some people, there are ketamine clinics in the state where I know, you know, you come out of the clinic and you're like in traffic and you haven't done any chatting with anybody and it's just rah! and so start to finish. And, you know, I mean, obviously you don't have to go into like, you know, super deep detail, but what, like, what would sure. my experience look like? What would happen is let's say the patient comes in, they've been adequately screened. We've reviewed their medical records, confirmed their diagnoses of, you know, MDD, GAD, PTSD, et cetera. Once all of that is clear. And, you know, I also review their labs, looking at their LFTs and their kidney function. So assuming they've gone through that rigorous screening, they'll come into the clinic they will do some paperwork. And so I practice something called measurement-based care. Let's say you're coming in for depression and anxiety. You'll fill out the little surveys for each of those and what you'll do at each session so that we can actually monitor how the patient is doing. So we have that numerical component. And then once you do that, you're going to come into the infusion room. We're going to get your weight. And then we're going to base the ketamine dose upon your weight And then, you know, paying really conscious attention to the set and setting, I'm going to be asking you your intention. So what's your goal? What are you hoping to seek out from this ketamine therapy? And I'm going to have you focus on that goal throughout the infusion. Ketamine creates neuroplasticity. 
via increase of the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. And so I really want to leverage that by having the patient focus. And then next, you're going to sit back. We have a super comfortable chair that reclines into zero gravity mode. We're going to be placing on the electrodes, the BP cuff, the pulse oximeter, and we um, have eye shades. So we want to be a closed-eyed internal type of experience. We have a playlist with just some really nice calming music. And the patient will have that experience and they'll be focusing on their intention. Once that's completed, let's say 40, 45 minutes later, we still let them sit back and they're going to continue to kind of recover maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes. And everyone's a little bit different. The patient will sit back up and then we'll have a conversation. So I'll ask you like, Hey, on a scale of zero to 10, Rob, how strong was your effect? And let's say you're like, it was two. Or then we would, you know, that would give me a clue like, oh, we need to increase the dose. So if they're like, it was 2000 out of 10. Yeah. We need to decrease the dose <laughs> and kind of find that Goldilocks amount. Okay. And then we just have a discussion and kind of help process what the patient experienced and create a meaning from there. The last thing that I'll ask them is about integration. So, Hey, Rob, what's one small thing that you can do moving forward? And I kind of think about it as homework in between the sessions. What's one small thing that you can do between the sessions? And so you may say, oh, I'm going to meditate or I'm going to go for a jog or I'm going to, you know, go back into the swimming pool. I haven't been there in a while. And so, or I'm going to talk with my therapist. I'm going to make a phone call to my brother who I haven't seen in a long time. So a lot of these different integration actions, that's going to support the patient in between the sessions. And then the other thing I want to mention is the preparation. So even before you come into the clinic, we have a five days where we want the patient to prepare psychologically prior to the infusion. And do you have them journal, meditate? Like what's, yes, what's the process? Exactly. So the preparation is journaling, meditating, exercising, avoiding social media, news, reducing their caffeine use, reducing alcohol, marijuana use, and actually none prior to the infusions. Just staying in that positive mindset. Because again, what the patient enters with is going to make a pretty big impact on their experience. I remember one guy, he was playing like zombie video games the night before. And he comes out of it. And he's <laughs> like, oh my God, that was so scary. And he, I was like, <laughs> no he, kidding. <laughs> he had zombies during his ketamine experience. So we're, oh my we really want the patient to be, you know, mentally prepared. Each one of these things could be its own podcast, like surely. But the journaling before a peak experience or before a really internally investigative experience, do you have a particular prompt that you use for them? I don't. I tell them to journal whatever they want. There's a great concept. Her name is Julia Cameron. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She has something called morning pages. Yes. That's exactly what I was going to ask you about. And yes. it's the morning pages consists of just waking up and for five minutes, just free, just journaling, no editing, no correcting. No one's going to read it. I just want you to journal, get it out of the mind and onto paper. And so that's, you know, the preparatory journaling. And then afterwards I will ask them, Hey, just, you know, journal about this and, you know, write down your experiences. And then a lot of times they'll take that journal and they'll review it. Or they're like, yeah, I can remember this. And I'm going to talk about it with my therapist, you know, the next day or two. So I found that to be very, very effective for the patients who are into it. You really have 
address the nuance of entry in orbit and re-entry? hundred percent. I mean, you know, there's the four stages that I think about with ketamine therapy. So, you know, just to recap the preparation, the intention, the experience. So when they're having the experience, experience, the experience, letting whatever comes up to the surface, just let it come up. And then lastly, the integration. So that's kind of my model and or framework that I use for the ketamine sessions. How extensive does the monitoring, you're talking about monitoring, need to be. And then I guess there's, there, when we're talking about the space, right, you could build the Taj Mahal or you could have one room. So like, what's the minimum? And then what's the, what's the Cadillac? You know, it's so interesting because there's a wide variability in how the ketamine clinics are run. So there are some practitioners, providers who don't do any monitoring whatsoever. And they're like, Hey, it's not going to change management. I'm not going to do anything. And you know, they're doing it. Whereas at our clinic and other clinics who have that more of the monitoring background, anesthesia, EM, we are doing, you know, pretty rigorous. It's like right up there, you know, pulse oximetry, BP, cardiac rhythm. So it's pretty rigorous monitoring. And I have seen it where, you know, someone's blood pressure will skyrocket 220 over 120, or where I've seen them develop hypoxia. And I know typically we're taught, oh yeah, ketamine, it doesn't cause any respiratory depression. Oh, but I have seen patients dropping their SATs and I'm like, oh my goodness, I am so grateful that I'm monitoring them. Or, you know, that one patient who got AFib with RBR, like I would not have been able to detect that if we weren't doing that continuous vital sign monitoring. Are you so, in the room watching hmm. that monitor? Or are you in another room kind of? There's always someone inside of the room. So that's one of the things. So it's usually me and a, a medical assistant. And, you know, if I'm not immediately, if I'm not in the room, then I'm like, you know, 30 seconds away. So you were mentioning before about insurance with this. And I, I could I could imagine that it's not easy getting liability insurance or I didn't even think about med mal insurance. For some reason, this doesn't think like you're do, you know, you're really diagnosing and treating, but like, wow, where would the malpractice be? I guess there could be malpractice, but let's say, I, let's talk about that. Is how did you get liability and med mal insurance? So back, you know, five years ago when I started it, it was very not well known. And I talked with an insurance broker and I'm like, hey, I need to get malpractice insurance. And he reached out to, I think, seven insurance companies and they all denied my application. They're like, nope, you know, we, we don't know what you're doing. We're, we're not going to cover you. So I reached out to one company in particular that I had insurance from before for like some, you know, side urgent care work that I had done in the past. And I asked to speak with a senior underwriter and we, she and I had a conversation for probably 45 minutes, an hour. And I was telling her, Hey, this is what I'm doing. This is my background and just going into the evidence and why I was doing it. I really had to educate. And she saw, she's like, all right, Dr. Cove, let me run this by the committee and we'll see what we can do. So a few days later, I get an email saying, yeah, we're, we're going to approve you and you are covered. You're good to go. So it took some work definitely for that medical malpractice coverage. And fortunately, it was an obstacle that I was over, able to overcome. Now, more recently though, Rob, there's more ketamine clinics that are coming up. So people in the um, 
insurance world are very familiar with this. And so I would say it's a bit easier to get that coverage. And then, you know, in addition to malpractice insurance, like owning a business, there's other insurance, there's business owners insurance, there's workers' compensation insurance. So there's a whole host of other insurances that a physician would want to have prior to starting up the clinic. So you're talking before about the cycle, that first cycle of six treatments. What's that cost? So it's interesting. There's a range. Some clinics charge $500 in infusion. Others charge $1,000 in infusion. So when we started, we kind of put it kind of right in the middle. So it's $750 per infusion and times it by six. And so that's, you know, four grand roughly. And then the boosters also, which can occur once a month, once every six weeks, kind of depending upon the patient's needs. Those are also 750. I think it's important to have the right price. There was one clinic that had opened up and they were kind of marketing themselves as, hey, we're the most affordable ketamine infusion. And I think they were probably in business for about six to nine months. And it wasn't just sustainable because, you know, they went out of business and they were trying to be the the most inexpensive option. And they just, I don't, I don't know exactly what happened, but they, they ended up shutting down. Is that a matter of perception of value or just what it costs to run this? You've got to charge a certain amount. Yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of people say, Hey, ketamine is dirt cheap. It's generic. And it is, it's a generic drug, but There's the overhead of getting your office space, the medical staff, your assistants, the malpractice insurance, the supplies you're going to need to buy. So there's a lot of other factors that go into running the clinic. And it's not just the ketamine. You had talked about sometimes giving patients a PO dose for home. Who gets that? What's the word? I'm pretty conservative about the oral ketamine. So I'm I'm looking at someone who has done the six treatments, no hypoxia, no hypertensive issues. They're responsible. I feel like I can trust them. And you know, it is a schedule three substance. So I have them sign a contract and with very specific instructions. So it's not every patient, but it's for the ones who've done really well during their treatments without any, you know, major issues. And the other thing is I don't want them to be on a bunch of medications. So if they're not on too many other medications, that would be an ideal candidate for that. Curious your thoughts on Mind Bloom, which I see as a, a definite competitor to the brick and mortar ketamine clinic. So Mind Bloom, so listeners, that is an online ketamine clinic, I guess you'd say, where you do it all online. They send you the PO ketamine, an eye mask, a playlist. They do, I I think, online post-ketamine integration as you're talking about. Now, it's not available in all states, but it's all DIY. It's all you know, through the, not DIY, it's not totally DIY. There's a lot, there's definitely a, definitely a, an expeditionary spirit that you have to do it, but it's, it's all through the mail. And then the other stuff is basically on Zoom or whatever, whatever portal. So what do you think about this particular way of going about it compared to what you're doing? I think it's definitely a viable option. But the patient selection has to be really rigorous and strict. So I think that can be a model. But you know how it started was actually with the pandemic. And with the pandemic, the prescribing regulations were loosened, where to prescribe a controlled substance, pre-pandemic, you need to have an in-person visit. 
with a physician or a prescribing provider. And with the COVID-19 pandemic, they lifted that. And then so that's when you see this burst of online you know, telehealth companies where they're able to just do it virtually and then prescribe it without actually seeing a person physically. The restrictions that have been lifted may you know, once the pandemic is, I don't know, over, I guess that may go back into effect. So that's one issue to consider, but, you know, I've had patients who've done mind bloom and one person I can think of in particular, like, he's just like, it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same experience. There was no one watching me. I did not get that strong of an effect. Cause you know, you also have to think about, we had mentioned bioavailability with the oral, it's, I don't know, 20, 30% bioavailable. So they're taking these huge doses to get a similar effect where they could get it IV. So that's one of the challenges. Once you take the oral, what's in goes in, so you can't stop it or reverse it. So if there is kind of an adverse reaction, no one's going to be monitoring you and you can't take it out once it's in. So four grand for your first cycle, 750, just an average. So 750 for this, it's it's fine. It's like, wow, that's a lot. But And we're going to get an indications in a moment. But then you think, wow, compared to long-term treatment for depression, maybe that could be a lot less or PTSD. And before we jump into that, I'm curious if insurance covers this. It's a great question. So the insurance companies they're not really covering it, but it is changing. So they consider it off-label use. And so they consider it experimental. So they're like, hey, we're not going to cover it. However, there is another medication. It's called Spravato, intranasal S-ketamine. So Johnson & Johnson, they saw the results from IV ketamine, but it's generic. So they're like, well, how can we make money off of this? <laughs> so they create they, the enantiomer. Take the, they, they take the enantiomer, S-ketamine, <laughs> and then put it in like this specially formulated nasal spray, which is patented, like the specific pump and everything. And they're charging for each spray, I think $1,000 just for the medication. And it became FDA approved back in 2019. And so once something becomes FDA approved, then the insurance companies are required to cover it. So let's say that's a thousand bucks per spray. They require, I don't know, two to three sprays per week. And then that also does not include the two hour monitoring that the Spravato has to be, it's part of their requirements is they have to be monitored for two hours after they get that spray. So there's an additional fee. All of this boils down to is insurance companies. They're like, Hey, maybe we should just do the IV ketamine because the a recent meta-analysis systematic review showed that the IV ketamine was actually more robust and effective compared to intranasal. So I think they're going to kind of open up their eyes. For example, Massachusetts Blue Cross Blue Shield, they are now covering IV ketamine or Spravato. So I think things are tra transitioning, but as of now, it's not typically covered. Now, there are some other ways to get around that. So some physicians, they're just billing the insurance companies for the patient visit. They're not billing for the IV ketamine. And so there's some workarounds that's happening, but it is still a challenge. Okay. How do most people find you? You were talking about the beginning, it was slow and then self-referral, but now that you're up and running, is it still mostly self-referral mental health professionals, advertisements, just kind of the ketamine curious? They're mainly finding us through Google. Google, Yelp, self-referral, a lot of word of mouth. When we first started, I remember sending a letter to like 
every psychiatrist and internist and family practice and OBGYN. I think I sent like 500 letters. Didn't I think I got like one response. I think I'm assuming they just threw it away. So there was no real referrals from the provider network. But now I've been here. We've been established. And so now I'm working with psychiatrists, getting referrals from them, therapists, primary care doctors. So there are more referrals coming. And then also word of mouth. So, you know, the patient will get it. And then they're like, oh yeah, my husband now wants to come or my, you know, brother wants to come. So it's a it's a combination. But when I first started, it was pretty much a self-referral. We've been talking about what it looks like to have a an up and running and functional ketamine clinic and you know, we were talking in the beginning about wow what's you know how do you start this what's the space you need you now consult and help walk through people starting their businesses on this what do you think people get wrong when they start a ketamine clinic i think people who start up a ketamine clinic and they think this is going to be a get rich quick scheme. It's going to be super easy. There's just going to be a line of patients waiting at the door. If they're really just strictly driven by the profits and the the cash component, I would say it's probably not worth it. So if someone's already, you know, doing well financially in the clinical space and they're like, "Oh, I can make more money by doing this." It's probably a lot of work because that's one of the nice things about when I was working in the ER, I clock in clock out. I'm done. I do my 10 hour shift. I do my eight hour shift. I'm done. Of course I might, you know, go home and think about the patient, the missed, you know, dissection or whatever, but with the ketamine clinic, I'm just thinking about it all the time, Rob, whether, you know, it's like 9 PM, 10 PM. I'm like, all right, you know, what, what can I do here? So I think the biggest mistake is if someone is just going in for the money component. That sounds like a lot like medicine, right? If you're not mission-driven, you just don't anticipate what are the challenges that you have. And if you are mission-driven, okay, well, this is what is pushing me forward and able to you know, make all the other BS okay, because that's fine. I, this is my compass heading. If it's just making money, then all of the BS becomes just BS. Exactly. There's a great book, Simon Sinek. Start with why. He also has a TED talk. So for those who have not heard of it, just Google start with why, Simon. But what he talks about is that why. Like, why am I doing this? Whether it's medicine or whether it's starting up a business, you really have to get strong on your why. And if you don't have a strong why, you're going to face an obstacle. Oh man, the medical, they're not going to cover me for insurance. All right. I guess that's it. But if someone has a strong why, they're going to fill out the paperwork, they're going to do all of the the you know hurdles they're going to jump over it because they are mission driven and i think that's really crucial when you're starting up something like this i didn't know it was going to come out of that question about what people get wrong and i thought it's gonna be oh yeah you know you, you don't get the right space or you do this or you hire this person or do these ivs like no it's your intent wow wait to loop it back sam co <laughs> <laughs> I want to I want to change gears to ketamine itself, and you you had touched on this really briefly about what people come for. What are the indications for ketamine? I guess we, we could go into what's the FDA have to say, what's off label. Yeah, so I think about ketamine. So and you know four categories. So we have on label. So ketamine was. FDA approved in 1970 for specific use in the operating room for diagnostic procedures, sedation. And then we have off-label, 
which is where you're, we're, we're using it for depression, PTSD, anxiety, OCD. So that's off-label. And then I have another category, I think of it, I call it super off-label, where someone's like, you know, hey, psycho-spiritual exploration or yeah. creativity or, you know, tinnitus or Parkinson's disease. And, you know, those are kind of the categories. I mainly try to be evidence-based medicine practicing physician as possible. So if, if there isn't really a study for it, and I don't have a randomized, double-controlled, blinded study looking at ketamine's use, then I'm not going to treat that patient. Going back to the question though, what are patients coming in for? It's probably like an 80%, 20% split. 80% are mood disorders. And then another 20% are pain disorders. So fibromyalgia, complex regional pain syndrome, post-herpetic neuralgia, trigeminal neuralgia. So in particular, the pain-related issues, neuropathic types of pain. The mood disorders and the PTSD. So yeah, that gets the attention, but I'd never heard about neuropathic pain. I mean, it's, it's effective. Oh, in particular for neuropathic, so nerve-related. Yeah. Ketamine works, you know, as the listeners already know, it's an NMDA receptor antagonist. There's one painful, very painful condition, CRPS, where it's from basically hypersensitized pain receptors. And what ketamine seems to do is go in there and resets those hypersensitized pain receptors. So central sensitization. And, you know, by blocking activity of glutamate, it resets it. And that's kind of where our name comes from of the clinic reset ketamine is kind of resetting those pain receptors. And yeah, we had talked earlier about, you know, who can start up a ketamine clinic. One of the things I've noticed is that the people who aren't too familiar with IV ketamine, they're more focused on the mood disorders because it's a lower dose. It's not that long of a session. Whereas with the pain disorders, it's a higher dose and it's longer sessions. And because it's a higher dose. And because it's a longer session, there's potential for more complications. Mm. So, you know, that's one of the other trends I've seen where people who have more background in education, they're more familiar and comfortable with the pain disorders. We were talking about the six initial appointments or your six, your six pack. And if somebody's coming in for pain, is it the same thing? It's like, yeah, you get your six and then you just see if you need it going on, or is it kind of a different framework? It's kind of, it's a different framework because with complex regional pain syndrome, the studies are showing to do four hour infusions for five days. And that's pretty intense, right? Because it creates these non-ordinary states of consciousness. It can be kind of draining. So the protocols are kind of all over the place. There was a meta-analysis systematic review looking at ketamine for chronic pain syndromes. And what they found was that the longer they were going for, at least they, when they looked at the studies, they said, yeah, they're, you know, two hours was the sweet spot for the length of the infusion and then a higher dose. And I think that dose was probably like one mg per kg per hour. When someone's getting that five days or you know, they're on their, their six pack that goes over, do you leave the IV in between sessions? No, we don't. But fortunately, I have gotten really good at IVs. And when I first started, I remember one patient, she had a, a bunch of tattoos and I poked her probably four or five times and I could not get an IV. So I just practiced over and over when I, you know, any shift I'll do, you know, one or two IVs. And then the butterfly ultrasound came out, bought that. And it's just been a game changer for getting IVs. And then, so some of the listeners may be thinking, oh, you can just hire a nurse, right? And that's who typically starts their IVs. 
And it was challenging, Rob, because when I first started, again, it was super slow. And I was like, the nurse doesn't want to do a two-hour shift. It wasn't reliable source of income for them. So that's kind of one of the reasons why I was just like, you know what? I'm going to figure this out on my on my own. When we were talking about off-label, you know, m- most of the stuff is off-label, but also effective. Is your risk exposure increased when you use things or like use this off-label versus what the FDA says, okay, this is what we approve? I mean, I think there definitely is, but once something becomes FDA approved for a certain indication, we have the freedom to use it for any purpose that we feel is medically necessary. For example, aspirin. Aspirin was FDA approved back, you know, I I don't know how many years ago, but we're using it off-label for prevention of cardiovascular risk. So that is totally allowed and within the medical framework. Now with ketamine, I would say, yeah, the risk increases, but it's not completely outside of the risk. And one of the things you can look for is, well, there's many ketamine clinics. There's all of these studies. And so I think if you boil it down and go back to the evidence and say, so if someone ever does question, hey, why did you treat that patient? Well, here's the study. Here's a randomized, double-blinded controlled study looking at ketamine therapy. And this is the reason. So I think if someone has a strong medical justification, then I think that's 100% legitimate. When we're talking about mood disorders, how effective is ketamine versus say an SSRI or an SNRI, or I guess even test of time? So there was a a big study called the STAR-D trial where they were looking at the effectiveness of antidepressants. And I think their rates of remission were about 33% effectiveness for SSRIs. Whereas with the ketamine studies, we're seeing anywhere from 60, 70, 80% effectiveness rate. At my clinic, when I checked recently, we're about 83% success rate. And I'm defining success as a 50% or greater reduction in their scores. So as I mentioned, we have the measurement-based care. So that's what I'm looking for, a 50% or greater drop in either their PTSD score or anxiety score or PHQ-9, the depression score. Is it a lasting effect as in, does the depression come back after the sixth cycle I don't know. I got, what, what do you call it? I forgot the name. I what, call what? it the, so there's like the initiation series, initiation which is the six. Series. I like your, I like the six pack, the six pack. <laughs> metaphor. So there's the initiation series and then there's the maintenance. Okay. So initiation and maintenance. Okay. So after, so someone comes in for a six pack, it's like, oh yeah, 80%. Of course there's no guarantee, but 80% of patients have a 50% reduction in depressive symptoms or depressive scores. Does that last? Or is it, we kind of going to need some, some maintenance over time. It's variable. So I've seen it where patients get those six infusions and they are like solid. Um, I can think of one patient. He was a musician who would go on tours and he got the six infusions. He had some pretty intense experiences and he made some changes in his life. So we had talked about integration earlier. And one of the integration actions that he had was previously after each night of playing, he would go party, drink alcohol, just stay up late. And one of, one of the things he did for his next round, his next tour was he's like, Hey, Dr. Go, all I did was I went back to the hotel room. I didn't drink. I just chilled out. And he never came back for another infusion. 
And then we have the flip side of that where a patient is, they're getting a really good response. And then they're coming back every four weeks, every five weeks for an infusion. And then, then you have other patients who just don't respond. They'll get the six treatments and they're like, yeah, you're one of the non-responders. And then we say, okay, please follow up with your psychiatrist, maybe consider TMS therapy, maybe another psychiatric medication, maybe electroconvulsive therapy. But again, it's not hundred percent effective. And then as far as durability, it's variable. Durability, I think. There we go. That's a much more erudite term, I think, than I talked around. So you had mentioned before about the somebody who's just curious and wants to maybe explore their consciousness or have a psychedelic experience and see where that goes. You know, no depression, no PTSD, no boot disorder, no pain. So yeah, I want to. I just want to experience this. How does that play out with the ketamine clinic? For our clinic, I'm pretty rigorous and screen very carefully. So we don't really accept those patients. And, you know, if you think about our medical model, we're very problem focused. Think about our notes, chief complaint. What's, you know, what's the problem? What are they complaining about? We don't really think about like, Hey, getting curious or psycho-spiritual exploration or creativity. So because I am, you know, trained in the allopathic model of medicine, I kind of stri- stick with the problem-based type of issues rather than treating, you know, I would consider that super off-label. And so I don't really go into that space. As we're closing up, I, I want to loop back into some of the logistics of starting ketamine. And, you know, listeners, there are podcasts just on ketamine. <laughs> if you want to really get into or books or what or whatever, this is just kind of touching the surface. What happens if say someone gets hit by a bus crossing the street, a short interval after they've had ketamine therapy, how do you protect them? How do you protect yourself from a liability standpoint? We have all of our patients who we don't let them drive. Mm-hmm. So 99% of the patients are not going to be walking on the street and getting hit by a bus. So family member or friend will come and pick them up and then take them back home safely. Sometimes they can't do that. We're comfortable with an Uber or a Lyft. We also have a couple of drivers that we've worked with at our clinic. So I would say that's one way to protect yourself from that liability is just don't let the patient drive home. But it's kind of like, you know, if you give someone Dilaudid in the emergency department, And then, you know, let's say they don't have a ride, but they're not driving. If they get hit by a bus, that's going to be definitely a concern. But we don't send the patient home immediately after the ketamine therapy. We make sure that they're cognizant. We make sure they can walk. We make sure they can drink water, make sure their vital signs have normalized before they go home. So I would say, you know, keep a, keeping a close eye on them prior to discharging. All right. Somebody's listening to this and. I think there's probably several somebody's are listening to this thinking, hey, you know, I I could do this. And this totally aligns with what I want to do in medicine. What's their next step? So for the listeners, I want you to go to our website, ketaminestartup.com slash Rob Orman. And <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> Hang on. Hang on. I gotta see what this says. Oh, what I haven't it? made because <laughs> so, okay, I don't so, know what's going to pop up in this So Rob, I actually haven't made it yet okay. or it's it's not published yet. Okay. But when the listeners go to ketaminestartup.com slash Rob Orman, they're going to get a, they can download a, number one, a free checklist. And that's going to kind of go through like, hey, here's the, you know, 20 things on the checklist. And then number two, there's going to be a business plan template. 
So that's one of the other crucial things. And it's just kind of a fill in the blanks type of template. So if people who are not that business savvy, you know, having a business plan is really important. So they can download that template. It's all for free. Just go to the website, ketamine forward slash Rob Orman. Is there anything we're incomplete on as far as just kind of covering the surface of starting this up? Yes. The one thing that is coming up for me is, you know, as emergency physicians, we have the highest rates of burnout in medicine. And I was personally facing that. I'll be honest with you. I was one of the, you know, 67% or whatever physicians who are burning out. And I attribute that to lack of autonomy. Hmm. You know, we're being told what to do. We're hired by CMGs. We can be fired at any time. And for me, opening up my own practice, being the captain of my ship has been incredibly gratifying and rewarding, yet challenging. But if you're kind of looking for something else, you still want to use your clinical skills. This is something that is purpose-driven, mission-oriented, definitely something to consider. And the other thing I want to mention is you know, you're doing coaching. And for me, I've had coaches. And so for those who are interested, like if I didn't have a coach, I probably would not be where I am. And a lot of times as physicians, we have a hard time asking others for help. And there's probably like a stigma associated with it or whatever, but ask for help. You know, coaching is incredibly powerful. Therapy is really powerful. And then also doing your own thing. And for me, this has been one of the ways that I've been able to combat my burnout and now I go into work. I, I don't dread the next shift. I don't work holidays. I have weekends off. I don't do night shifts. I make my own schedule. You know, I'm not a morning person. So my first infusion starts at 10 a.m. So it's pretty sweet. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of autonomy. But at the same time, it's so gratifying. Looking at the other side of this, I don't know if this number is known because maybe there's not a registry, but like what your estimate, what percentage of ketamine clinics don't make it? Huh, great question. I don't know for ketamine clinics, but I know in general for businesses, only one out of five businesses will survive up to five years, 20% roughly. And this is just for all businesses in general, because it's a lot of work. I mean, it's you're going to be thinking about the ketamine clinic or any business that you start all the time. I mean, I don't know. I make up for you, Rob. You have a couple of businesses and you're probably thinking about them quite a bit, even during your free time. But at the same time, I remember this quote, they say that um, you know, when you love what you're doing, you're not actually working. And so for me, when I'm doing the work, it doesn't feel like work. It just feels a bit like play. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about this and hope you have a lovely day, Sam. Thank you, Rob. Take care. And that is it for today. To learn more about one-on-one coaching or get the complete show notes for this or any other podcast episode, visit our website, roborman.com. And thanks again for those of you supporting production of this show through Patreon. If you'd like to be a stimulus Patreon, but are yet to be, there's a link right there in the show notes for you to tapity tap and holy smokes, you too can be a Patreon. Until the next time, my friends. Be well and keep on rocking.